0: You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by Acro. I'm Doug McKenna, University Registrar at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And this is the history of grades. Hello. Welcome to For the Record. I'm still Doug McKenna. I know I just said that a second ago, but maybe you skipped the intros. Who knows? I'm happy you're here listening. I hope that this finds you well. Today, we're going to be talking about a foundational part of the higher education experience, something so pervasive and universal that we probably don't even think about it. That thing we're talking about today? Grades. Grades. Really, Doug? Grades? What is there to say about grades? (laughs) Oh, so much. Just wait. Grades are crazy. I say it all the time that the registrar is the steward of student academic data. And that is true. We are. But how did the data we're stewarding come to be? Have you ever sat upright in bed at some ungodly hour and thought to yourself, self, why is there no E grade? Maybe you haven't, maybe you're normal, or maybe you've given it a passing thought at some point, but the thought came and went like an unfamiliar car passing by your house. It just kept on driving, never to be seen again. You may recall that there's an episode of For the Record in the first season that addresses the history of the student record. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. Dr. Ethan Hutt is the guest, and he lays out the history of how the transcript came to be what we know it as today. Today, we're going to go one step further and talk about the grades that are actually on the transcript. And as a side note, I checked my grammar to confirm proper usage of further instead of farther. Grammarly says that farther is generally used for physical distances, while further is for metaphorical distances, and father is used to describe a male parent. You're welcome. I'm in a PhD program in education with a specialization in higher education because I needed one more thing in my life, but it's great. I'm really enjoying it. I'm taking one course at a time, and my goal is to receive my degree before my son graduates from college. He's a high school sophomore currently, so that's six more years. Go me. Anyway, I was working on a project this past semester on grades and grading and figured that I would share. Grades are an almost universal presence across all facets of education in the United States. And because of this, it's easy to assume that grades have always been a part of the process, that they have always looked the same, and that they have neither changed nor evolved over time, when in fact, each of these assumptions is incorrect. For example, did you know that the widespread adoption of what we consider the standard grading system, A through F letter grades, is a relatively recent phenomenon within U.S. higher education? It wasn't until post-World War II that it became as pervasive as it is today. In the early days of higher ed in the United States, when British and Prussian systems of assessment were in vogue, instructors would literally reassign seats in the class on a daily or weekly basis, depending on how a student fared. The best students would sit in the front, the worst in the back. And that is where the term the head of the class Comes from. When we think about grades and grading, if you're like me, you assumed that the A through F was the default and that it has always been that way. In fact, three distinct systems were common and they didn't merge until the early 20th century. Even now, today, there are more than 15 variations of grading systems in use. So when we think about the history of grading and of grade schemes, Schneider and Hutt, yes, the very same Ethan Hutt, in 2014 wrote, quote, The history of grades reflects the interplay between the work of the classroom and society at large, end quote. The history of grades is interwoven with the history of higher education in the United States and with the history of the United States itself. So, where to begin? Well, you have to go all the way back to 1785 to find the first example of grades being assigned. Ezra Stiles, then president of Yale, categorized 58 seniors into four groups, Optimi, Second optimi, inferioris, and perjoris. I probably don't need to say, but I will, that all of the fifty-eight students were men, and all of them were white. US higher education's history is one of exclusion and of privilege, and it doesn't help anything to overlook that, which is why conscientious efforts to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion continue to be so important. So, there's probably an entire episode that should be devoted to the history of the expansion of access in U.S. higher education. Oberlin College in Ohio opened in 1833, permitted blacks to apply in 1835, and became coeducational in 1837 with the admission of four female students, one of the earliest institutions to do so. In contrast, Yale first accepted women in 1969, a quick 132 years later. Back to the four categories. These aren't grades in the way that we understand grades today. First, they're being awarded at the end of the student's academic career and are based on the totality of how well the students were able to demonstrate their learning, likely in a public recitation or similar construct. And second, they're in Latin mostly, except for the word second. I don't know why Ezra didn't go with secundus or sequi or even minor optimi. That's just how he rolled, I guess. But a gauntlet had been thrown. In 1813, Yale switched from using descriptive categories to using a numeric system. Students were assessed by the faculty and given an overall score with four being the highest and zero being the lowest. These scores were recorded in a book of averages maintained by the institution. Yale switched to a nine point scale soon after, but switched back to a four point scale in 1832. Yale's four point scale is regarded as the precursor to the way GPA is calculated today. And it's really a five-point scale because zero was an option. So zero, one, two, three, four. Another fun fact is that Yale didn't tell students their grades during this time period. They kept grades secret to prevent unbecoming competition amongst students. It wasn't until the student completed their course of study that their grades were revealed to them. Which is totally wild. Okay, other institutions in the 18-teens through the 1830s used descriptive categories to grade their students, but incorporated more than just the students' academic performance into that grade. According to an 1817 faculty report from William and Mary, they awarded their students the following categories based on their academic performance, personal conduct, and attendance. Number one the first in their respective classes, number two, orderly, correct, and attentive, number three, they have made little improvement, and number four, they have learned little or nothing. The earliest record showing that William & Mary used a plain numerical scale dates to 1850, And it was a true four-point scale, with one being the highest grade and four being the lowest. Now, in 1861, southern states seceded and formed a confederacy, resulting in the Civil War. The United States ultimately prevailed in that conflict, though I might argue that we're still experiencing the fallout from a failed reconstruction and judicial reckoning. This, however, is not a podcast about the Civil War, but is, in fact, about grades. For now. Post-Civil War, by 1870, we see continued diversity in grading systems in use. Yale was using a scale that ran from 200 to 400, which just seems silly, but Yale's got a Yale. Harvard was classifying students into six different groups based on a 100% basis, And the point system in use at William & Mary had been adopted by other institutions. The University of Michigan, meanwhile, was experimenting with a pass-fail system, followed by a plus or minus system, followed by a numeric system. All of the elements of our modern standard grade scheme were already in place in 1870. Just not all at the same time, nor all at the same institution. Oh, and another side note, national higher education statistics began being recorded in 1870, which is pretty amazing. Okay, so if you wanted a super broad generalization about the status of grade schemes employed by post-secondary institutions in the latter part of the 19th century... You'd have to say that they varied wildly across institutions and were incredibly fluid, even within the same institution as faculty pushed and pulled at different ways of assessing students' learning. Maybe it goes without saying, but the lack of a consistent standard by which one institution could assess the accomplishments of a student at a different institution made things very challenging. Things are about to kick into high gear here. So I want to take a minute and talk about the rapid expansion of enrollments in U.S. higher education between 1870 and 1907. Remember how grades are affected by the interplay with the classroom and society. And well, society is starting to change pretty dramatically the rapid expansion of enrollments was largely driven by immigration to the United States from Southern, Central, and Eastern Europe. For example, approximately 4.5 million Irish immigrated between 1820 and 1930, and half of all immigrants in the United States in the 1840s were Irish. By the 1880s, Italians were immigrating to America in droves as well, as some 4 million Italians arrived in the United States between 1880 and 1921. We have been and continue to be a nation of immigrants. During this time, 1870 to 1907, higher education enrollments increased by 278%. U.S. population growth along with the hint of expanding access for women and people of color, contributed to this gain. Also, states began enacting laws in 1852 through 1917 that made secondary schooling compulsory, which then led to an increase in the number of individuals who were able to proceed on to post-secondary learning. With this influx of enrollments, it's become very difficult to continue to maintain the same level of personalization as was involved in the early educational enterprise. Two very notable developments right here at the latter part of the 19th century. In 1869, Harvard creates a new honor system for their graduates, and you'll recognize these summa cum laude, magna cum laude, and cum laude. Their system is better than Yale's original system because it's entirely in Latin and because it's still around. Sorry, Ezra. Harvard initially only indicated summa cum laude and cum laude until 1880 when they added magna cum laude right there in the middle. Amherst also began awarding what we now refer to as Latin honors in 1881, though they divided the entire graduating class into roughly five equal divisions and awarded Latin honors to the top three. In 1897, Mount Holyoke implemented the letter grade system using A through F for final grades in individual classes, becoming one of the first, if not the first, institutions of higher education in the United States to do so. And they changed grading schemes in the middle of an academic year, implementing letter grading for the spring semester in 1898. The A through F scheme included an E as a passing grade, and the minimum passing score was 75. Now, that initial letter grade scheme divided scores into six groups, hey, just like Harvard had done, only they weren't equally divided across the six categories. In fact, when it was rolled out from highest to lowest, 100 to 95 was an A, 94 to 90 was a B, 89 to 85 was a C, 84 to 80 was a D, 79 to 75 was an E, and anything below 75 was a failing grade. Those categories are super narrow. There were no pluses or minuses, just those six categories. Good luck, kids. That scheme didn't last very long, though. Just four years later, in 1902, Mount Holyoke revised the system to make the point spans 10 points each. 100 to 90 was an A, 90 to 80 was a B, etc. A couple of other revisions were incorporated. The letter grades got a descriptor, and A carried a description of superior, followed by excellent for B, good for C, indifferent for D. If you got a D as a grade in a class at Mount Holyoke in 1902, the descriptor was indifferent. Does that mean you were indifferent to your learning? That the instructor was indifferent to your work? I have so many questions. The E grade didn't get a descriptor, and you had to score exactly 60 to be awarded an E. F remained, but carried the descriptor conditioned. They also added another grade of FF, which is described as conditioned so seriously that work must be repeated. Don't get too comfortable with that setup either, though, because it changed again in 1904. Yes, the creation of a grade scheme is a messy process, and it took some trial and error. 1904 won't be the last change either. In 1904, they dropped the F and FF grades, shifted E down from a passing grade, and added an EE grade, which is described as failed. The descriptions for the other grades changed as well. A became excellent, B became good, C was fair, and D was described as passing. I guess they weren't indifferent about it after all. All of this information was provided to me by one of the archivists at Mount Holyoke. As I was beginning to look at primary sources for my class project, I reached out to a couple of archivists and many of the documents they produced for me were sourced from the registrar's office. So just a reminder to all y'all that the work we do is important. Keeping accurate records is critical, not just for contemporaneous congruency, but who knows what grad student might be digging into your institution's archives to review documents you created. It's a very humbling thought. Okay, so we're back to the timeline. Mount Holyoke brought us up to 1904 and dropped A to F grading into the chat. In 1905, do you know what happened? There's an episode about it in season three of For the Record. Andrew Carnegie created a pension fund for college professors In order to qualify for the fund, institutions first needed to come up with an agreement about what a college was. Here's where the delineation between high schools and post-secondary institutions really come into focus. And as we know, the adoption of the Carnegie Unit led to significant standardization across institutions, and that included a push for more standard grading schemes. Another factor that encouraged standardization was the increased geographic and economic mobility that emerged in the early 20th century. Families would have their children in school in one place, then move to a different place. That other place needed some interpretable documentation of those students' schooling. Just when you thought it would be smooth sailing to the universal adoption of the A through F letter grade scheme, we get to World War One, which started in 1914. Following the Great War, which ended in 1918, we have the Roaring Twenties, and then the Great Depression, and then World War II from 1941 to 45. And my father, the historian with a PhD in history from Duke University, would be so proud of the way I concisely summarized some of the most significant events in 20th century American history. Well... I am proud. Dad? Is that you? How long have you been there?
1: I'm always here.
0: (laughs) You know, that is remarkably comforting. Hey, everybody. It's my dad, retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, dean emeritus of the Marine Corps Staff College at Quantico, PhD in history from Duke University, and all-around great guy. Last time you were a guest on the podcast, which surprisingly was about two years ago, we didn't know it at the time, but you had COVID. So I'm glad that you're feeling better this time around. So am I. (laughs) Glad that is. Yes. Yes. And that you're still here to be (laughs) a guest. Amen Um, to that. So dad, since you're here, you're a historian, right? Uh, uh, Supposedly. <laughs> That's the rumor. Anyway, what did you write your dissertation on?
1: Um, I did both my master's thesis and then expanded it to a dissertation on a subject related to um, institutional uh, evolution and organizational structure of the American Army at the turn of and the early part of the 20th century. Um, I was fortunate to have an advisor who was very interested in having the army officers who came through Duke work on subjects that related to the institution that we belong to, so that we learned as well as we grew uh, with the creation of a legitimate academic document.
0: That's pretty great. I remember when we lived at West Point, I was maybe kindergarten or first grade, You working on your dissertation and I've seen the legal pad of paper where you (laughs) wrote longhand and skipped three lines in between each line so that your readers could make comments or you could make revisions. As a PhD student now, I cannot even comprehend. I can't imagine composing a dissertation like that.
1: Uh, It it is a different, or was, uh, a completely different world. Uh, I was um, something of a nerd in high school. But I didn't take my nerdishness far enough to take a typing class. So I did not know how to type. Uh, And every paper I wrote, every note I took, The research log that I still have that weighs about four pounds uh, (laughs) happened in longhand and in pencil, not in ink, so that I could erase or I could edit uh, with less damage to the piece of paper or the note card. And it was, I had to pay people to type the papers that I was required to turn in typed Both my master's thesis and my PhD were typed by others, then I reviewed and edited and then paid them for typing my document for me. So it was a different world. And I I would guess that if you added up all the note cards, all the paper typed and or handwritten that I created, With respect to those two documents, my master's degree and then building upon it to my PhD, I could probably put it all on my phone. Yeah. Which is one of the, you asked me about major points, I would suggest the entry into and the uh, development of the digital age has enormous, has had and will continue to have enormous ramifications for education. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, you know a heck of a lot more about that than I do now as an old retired puke who <laughs> <laughs> has trouble turning his phone on. In, in point of fact, I just turned my flashlight on and didn't even know it. Um, <laughs> sorry. And I don't know how to turn it off. Uh, I'll give it to mom. She knows. Um right. So that uh, that is one of the, the perhaps the most significant point that I can relate to as far as it uh, concerns education.
0: Yeah, well, let's jump back a little bit. Um, okay. To the so we had the industrial revolution was what mid nineteenth century 1850, yeah. 1870. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give us a quick overview of what's going on in the United States in the very early? 20th century. Obviously, I went through a litany of significant events r- rather quickly. Uh, and there are any number of classes that could be taught on any of those individual events. And in fact, I mean, the History Channel has made an entire career of World War II. So I'm going to give you five or 10 minutes. Okay. Give us- early 20th century, what's going on? What's America like? What's happening? Ready? Um, Go.
1: I'm okay. I'm going to give you more than that. Great. uh, Or try to Uh, 1898, the entrance of America onto the world stage with the Spanish American war uh, and the colonization of places like the Philippines and Cuba uh, and, and islands in the Western Pacific world. War one brought the United States onto the world stage kicking and screaming, by the way, in a major way. Uh, and we could never look back. The, you mentioned the Great Depression, in a sense, World War II helped us kick the depression with all of the energy associated with recruitment, raising the forces, charging up the industrial base to do everything and to emerge at the end of World War II as probably the preeminent power on the earth. We had fought a two ocean war. We had two ocean navies. We had a Marine Corps that fought in the Pacific. We had an army in the Pacific, army in Europe. Uh, And while there were other major powers with significant land forces like the Russians, when you added the entire defense establishment up, we were uh, preeminent. Now, let me go forward from there. I'm a baby boomer. I was born in 1946, literally within a year of the dropping of the first atomic bomb. Ushering in the nuclear age one of the things and the the nuclear shadow has has been over us ever since um, The history is ostensibly the study of continuity and change over time And I would suggest to you the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, pestilence war famine and death uh, remained with us in, in bold relief not just uh, episodically during the period of, of my life the uh, the telecommunications development, television, as opposed to just listening to your radio. I watched all the coverage of the Kennedy assassination in 1963. Prior to that, we watched this this speech, uh, identifying the by President Kennedy about the missiles in Cuba. I watched. Jack Ruby in Dallas because CBS was covering that movement. And so it happened live in front of the American public. I entered West Point in 1964 at about the time when we were getting much more deeply involved in Southeast Asia. I graduated from West Point in 1968 at the height of the Vietnam War. Before we graduated, we were burying lieutenants who had been our upperclassmen who had been killed in the war and in my own experience, I lost 20 classmates uh, fighting in the Vietnam War. Coming out of uh, of Vietnam, the world continued to change and to evolve. And we could never go back, we could never return to anything resembling isolationism. So we get more deeply involved in the Middle East. I have served, had served when in uniform, just south of the Arctic Circle, north and south of the equator, in yep. North America, Latin America, South America, Central Europe, and Southeast Asia. And in all of those places, the world changed and is continuing to change at, at almost an exponential rate. The, one of the other things that happened during World War II and continues today as, as it relates to education, was the passage in 1944 of the GI Bill, intended originally to provide veterans the opportunity to get lower interest rates on mortgages, lower interest rates on loans, to be able to buy homes, to go back to school for so that they could develop in ways that the war interfered with when they had to go off and serve. Right. Um, I took advantage of, of tuition assistance for some graduate work I did in Panama while we were stationed there. But when I took command of an airborne rifle company, I had nothing else that I could spend my time on. So I wasn't able to complete the degree I started. We have changed, we have evolved. I'm not sure, the, how should I say this? We may have greater connectivity with the digital age and its development and maturity. I, I wonder if we have fewer people who feel isolated. We have more information. But do we have more wisdom? And we certainly have greater affluence. But do we have more charity than we used to have? I can remember when America was burning in the sixties. When the civil rights movement and the violence associated with that, I was a first classman at West Point when Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 1968. The day that I graduated on the 5th of June, 1968, earlier that morning, Bobby Kennedy had been shot coming out of his victory in the Democratic, California Democratic primary running for president. He died the next day. So I can't say he was assassinated on the day I graduated, but he was mortally wounded on the day I graduated. And that was the world that I and my classmates entered uh, and served in.
0: What degree were you working on in Panama? P.S. I was born in Panama. Yes, you were in April of nineteen 19- seventy Thanks, Dad. I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> it, was,
1: <laughs> um, it was a degree in uh, public administration nice. And I I got about three or four seminars in before my life changed in such a way that I was captured by the service I was rendering in the position I then had as a commander. So I, yeah. I couldn't complete the degree. But I was fortunate. I was selected to go back to West Point to teach yep. um, and sent to Duke in order to study, which was a school that I had In my dream of dreams, aspired perhaps to attend as an undergraduate. Couldn't do it. I preferred going to, I love going to West Point. But to go there for graduate school, it was
0: wonderful. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, Dad, thanks for being here. You bet. My pleasure. Any other last minute tidbits? I think uh, if I had to say anything
1: else, I, I would suggest that our politics have become even more fractious. Than they, than they used to be um, and to recognize the changing face of America. Yeah. Because immigration in the period during the 30s and 40s and even the 50s largely occurred from Western Europe. Right. Immigration since about the 80s, maybe even earlier than that, has primarily been from Asia, Africa and Latin America. And America as a culture is still trying to come to grips with that that evolution is made more difficult by the fractious character of our political system and our politics in general
0: these days yeah and i would say that that shift in country of origin has had wide-ranging effects on american society and including on american higher education of course Hey, thanks to my dad for jumping in and dropping some mad historical knowledge and sharing some of his own personal experiences. Love it. Back between the World Wars, educational reformers continued the push for standardization, but it wasn't until after World War II that we see the massification of higher education, which is the process of bringing something to a massive audience. As my dad pointed out, the GI Bill enabled returning soldiers to afford to go to college and colleges and universities also saw an enormous increase in research funding from the federal government, state governments and private foundations. There is a lot to be said about the way higher education was affected by the world wars and the ways that it changed in response to societal needs and government pressure during World War II, especially are significant. But this is not a podcast about the effects of world wars on U.S. higher education yet. At the turn of the 20th century, there were fewer than 1,000 institutions of higher ed in the U.S., some 160,000 enrolled students, and just shy of 40,000 degrees conferred, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral combined. By 1930, the number of degrees had tripled to 122,000 and then more than tripled again by 1950 to 432,000 and then almost doubled by 1970 to 827,000. It was in the early 20th century that registrars worked to synthesize the grade schemes at their various institutions. Like I said before, the elements of what we know today as the traditional letter grade system had existed for some time. The categorization of student performance, descending values from four to zero, the decision to use letters as descriptors. Oh, hey, we haven't talked about where the E grade went. It's pretty straightforward, actually. People were confused when they saw an E because they thought it meant excellent, when in fact, it meant the opposite. And I believe that's one of the reasons Mount Holyoke went with a double F instead of proceeding on to a G, which could be mistaken for good. Although a double F could also be mistaken by a musician as very loud or as a fan of the Foo Fighters. Regardless, E went the way of indifferent as a notation. And we still refer to the scheme as A through F, but we really mean A through D plus F. Now, one might think that when a bunch of institutions began all using the same letter scheme to represent student learning achievement, everything would be sorted, yeah? Well, no. You see, it took until 1970 for the letter grade scheme to reach an 80% adoption rate by post-secondary institutions. That is a glacial pace. And even still, there've been some notable holdouts. Bowden only adopted A through F grading in 1991, abandoning a four category system that had been in place since 1967. So this has not been a quick process and it has not been a straight line either. Remember how Mount Holyoke revised their grade scheme three times in the first 10 years of its existence and how institutions in the late 19th century kept experimenting with various grade options? That has continued. Maybe not to the extent that it was happening in the 19th century, but here we are in the 21st century And Mason just created brand new grade designations in response to a global pandemic. And I know Mason isn't the only school to do so. Cornell has changed their grade scheme a significant number of times. Yale has gone through a similarly large number of revisions. UNC Chapel Hill, William & Mary, Michigan State, the entire Florida higher ed system all have made and continue to make tweaks, and changes to the grade schemes in use at their institutions. Whether it's adding pluses and minuses, changing the quality points associated with a grade designation, incorporating pass-fail, credit, no credit, things keep changing. How do I know? Because I've looked at their transcript keys. The transcript key is one of those critical pieces of information that institutions share with external entities, including and especially other institutions to let the receiver accurately interpret the information contained on the transcript. And they are wonderful snapshots of the history of an institution. And guess who maintains them at nearly every institution? You got it, registrars. I'm not going to lie, we're pretty badass. Now, there is a lot more to say about how even when two schools are using A through F grading, it doesn't mean that a B at one school means the exact same thing as a B at another school, nor even within an institution itself. Across different disciplines, there is significant variability in grading. So really, we're talking about a common framework, not necessarily a universal system. And that's part of the beauty and frustration of academic freedom in U.S. higher education. The faculty own the curriculum. The faculty are responsible for assessing the learning of their students and providing appropriate grades. And faculty... Differ from institution to institution. Grading itself remains highly problematic. Dressel and Nelson wrote in the Journal of Higher Education back in 1964, quote, "...there is no solution of the grading problem satisfactory to all concerned. Students would like all A's, administrators would like few F's, and the teachers would like to be left alone." Grading is inevitable. It is, at best, inaccurate and unreliable. End quote. In 1971, Gold et al. wrote in the Journal of Experimental Education, quote, This system encourages students to select courses which promise high grades for a minimum of effort. The attainment of high grades is often perceived not as a key to success, but as success itself," end quote. And finally, Jody Green, special advisor to the Provost for Education Equity and Academic Success at UCSC, said, quote, "'Grades are not a representation of student learning, as hard as it is for us to break the mindset that if the student got an A, it means they learned, end quote. So what does that mean for us as registrars? Well, it means that we can expect grade schemes to continue to change and evolve in small ways and possibly in much more significant ways. Regardless of the system in place, we will continue to document the institution's policies Accurately represent a student's record in perpetuity and work collectively as registrars to ensure standards and consistency across institutions are maintained. Because that is what we do. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope that this overview of the history of grade schemes has been useful, or at least interesting. One thing that is clear is that higher education is affected by society overall, just as we are hopefully positively affecting society. I'll put a bunch of references on the show notes page in case you want to dig into anything more deeply, and maybe I'll include a link to my final project on grades as well. If you're enjoying the podcast, share it with a friend be sure to drink some water, stretch your legs, and until next time, be kind to each other and to yourself. I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record.